So to begin, as we consider Psalm 35, I think we're going to be helped to take a step back and look at the context, so the Psalms as a whole. And there are two reasons for this. One, this is kind of a broad summary or overview for the end of our summer of Psalms. And two, I think it will help us understand how to read Psalm 35 in particular better. So Psalm 35 this week is the place to do it, not next week in Psalm 36. Now why is that? Because in Psalm 35, we see uh, it is focused on King David, his relationship to God, and his enemies. Those three ingredients. We see it right away in verse 1. David cries out, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. This is an imprecatory prayer. It's meaning that God, or David is calling on God to judge and wipe out his enemies. In verses 5 and 6, let them be like chaff. Let their way be dark and slippery. If we read the Psalms like we do the book of Proverbs, with some wise sayings here and spiritual truth, and kind of put together maybe in our minds randomly, without a structure or flow, I think we're going to struggle with coming to a psalm with an imprecatory prayer. So, we're going to take a step back and see if the context can help us. As we do that, we see Psalm 35 is located in book one of the Psalms. So the Psalms are actually made up of five books in total. If you want, you can flip to Psalm 41, and after that you'll see book two begins. So there are five books in total, and it seems that these five books are not random, but they actually tell a single story as well. So think of a photo collage. You can take one photo or one snapshot, and that tells you the story of a, so, of a certain moment or time in your life. But if you start to put multiple photos into a book or to a timeline, you begin to tell a much larger story using these smaller snapshots. In a similar way, the Psalms do this. So Jacob last week gave us a great example of how much a single snapshot can cover. In Psalm 34, from extolling God's greatness to him being near the poor and the needy. So Psalm 34 was a snapshot. Psalm 35 is another from King David's life. But when we take a step back, what do all these snapshots come together to tell us? What is the story that the Psalms are telling us? The Psalms recount the history and the hope of Israel with a focus on David. The Psalms recount the history and hope of Israel with a focus on David. Pastor, theologian Jim Hamilton breaks it down this way. In books one and two, these roughly trace out David's life. In fact, most of the Psalms that David writes are in these first two books. So it seems to be tracing David's life as the king. Book three then, from Solomon to the exile of Israel. Book four seems to be reflections on exile and on God's deliverance in the past, which brings hope for the future. And then book five focuses on God's future deliverance through a Davidic king. So for example, in book one, which traces David's life, we read in Psalm two of the Lord's anointed. And that's immediately followed by 39 psalms written almost exclusively by King David. Fast forward to book five, which focuses on God's future deliverance through a Davidic king. And we read in Psalm 110 that a coming anointed one will execute judgment on the nations. And that's immediately followed by several psalms of praise and hallelujah. So this concept, this focus on David or the Lord's anointed, 
features prominently in the book of the Psalms. And why is that? Well, the Psalms really tells the same thing that the Old Testament is telling us. The first promise of a Redeemer comes in Genesis 3. Right after Adam and Eve's sin, in the midst of God giving punishment for sin, God promises Eve that one of her offspring will come and crush the head of the serpent. That promise then is narrowed down to Abraham and to his family, which is why the Bible spends so much time on Israel, because that's coming from Abraham. God says that through you I will bless all nations. That is narrowed down even smaller to the line of David. When God makes a covenant with David, and he says that somebody from your line is going to be a king forever. The Old Testament prophets then pick up on this, and they tie this work of this coming servant, this coming king, to the new covenant. So this is why the idea of David features so prominently. It is through this coming king, this redeemer, that God is going to deal with redemption, with sin and judgment, and with forgiveness and reconciliation. As Pastor Jacob is going to mention in, a, in several weeks, I think this is why the book of Matthew begins with 17 verses of genealogy. It's not really the most eye-catching opening to a book. I think oftentimes we just read past the genealogies. But it's very important that Jesus is connected both to David and Abraham. So this is a big deal. So that is the overview. The Psalms tell a story about the history and hope of Israel with a focus on David. Both David himself as the king, but also his kingship projected into the future on that coming Redeemer. So I want us to have that in our minds now as we come to Psalm 35. Because as we read in Psalm 35, David is in peril. We read in the psalm that God delights in his servant, but the problem is God's servant is under attack. And that's where we find ourselves here in Psalm 35. We're going to read the psalm now in its entirety, and as we do so, I want you to look for three simple things. One, the problem, two, the request, and three, the outcome. So the problem, the request, and the outcome. Let's read the psalm now together. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Let, them. let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it, to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, 
As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but are against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me, and they say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So there is the psalm. We're going to begin by looking at the problem. David begins the psalm with a request, but we're going to see the grounds. Why is David crying out first? And to do that, we'll look at verses 7 and 8. What's the problem? Quite simply, David is under attack, openly and publicly. People have hid a net for him. They've dug a pit. People are seeking to ensnare David and take him down. We also notice that important phrase said twice, that this is without cause. The plotting and the scheming is unjustified. It's not as if David as the king started a fight, and now that it's coming back to him, he can't handle it. And that really is the case, as we'll see in verses 11 and following. This leads David to ask that God would give them a taste of their own medicine. Really, that they would just bear their consequences. The evil that they've stirred up will fall back on their head. You see it when he says, will they hit a net for me? Let them become ensnared in it. The pit that they dug, let them fall into it. And we see what these people have done in verses 11 through 21. Malicious witnesses, verse 11 calls them. They are repaying David evil for good. So not only is it without cause, but this is totally opposite of what David deserves. We see this in verses 13 and 14. We see how David treats these people prior to their attacks. He says that he cared for them. He wore sackcloth. He fasted. He prayed. He grieved and he mourned as though a family member was dying. But how was David treated in his time of need? We see that in verse 15. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. His enemies turned on him. They gathered together, they tore, they gnashed their teeth, they've dug this pit, they've hit a net for him. And we're not told exactly what David's stumbling is. We don't know if it's political, like on a nationwide level, we don't know if it's moral, if he was caught in sin. David doesn't tell us here. 
but we can be sure that we have an accurate picture of what's going on. And I say that because so many of us have been talking to friends who maybe have gotten in an argument, and we hear their side of the story, and it sounds terrible. And then you go and talk to the person who's wronged them, and you find out that's not the true story at all. But it was an exaggeration. This is not what David is doing here. We can be sure of that because God was always faithful in his dealings with David. Meaning, when David sinned, the Lord told him about it. When he sinned with Bathsheba, um, the prophet Nathan came and rebuked him. Uh, When he took a census at the end of his life out of pride to see how great the nation had become, God brought punishment. So this is truly a case of those who are wrongfully David's foes, as it says in verse 19. We should not think that this is an exaggeration. David is up against those who he's cared for, but now at his stumbling, they are ready to pounce. They're ready to say, aha, our eyes have seen it. They are even against those who are quiet in the land. And this is totally unprovoked. There's other motives that are leading his enemies to do this. David's cared for them, but when an opportunity comes possibly to seize power, now is the time they rise up, that the floodgates open. And you can imagine it, right? The king is supposed to lead God's people in righteousness, to read God's word, and then instruct the people. And it seems as if in verses 13 and 14, God is doing just, or David is doing just that. But now David stumbles, and the accusations come. Maybe he's not qualified, he's a hypocrite. We've known this all along, it's all been a front. So in a moment, David is under attack. God's king is under public scrutiny. His enemies are rising, he's served and done good, but now he's met with evil. And if we remember that context, that David as God's king Um, is under attack, we know that God's promises to him are at stake. Now, I don't mean that God's promises can be thwarted or his plans, but from the ground level, from David's perspective, this is a very real threat to what the Lord has told him. And that leads us to consider David's request. We see this immediately in the psalm in verse 1, even before explaining the situation. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Notice down in verses 5 and 6, the angel of the Lord is who David invokes or calls upon as well. David is calling for God to utterly wipe out his enemies, to put the threat to bed. And the angel of the Lord, Pastor Jacob referenced last week, and he explained that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is the Son of God at work in the Old Testament. David himself didn't know this exactly, Right, not, not like we do when we have the whole completed canon of scripture, but David would have known what this angel had done in the past. Think back to Joshua 5. Joshua is about to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, and he comes upon the angel of the Lord. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Notice what the angel says. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. Joshua falls on his face and he worships this angel, which is a big no-no. You should only worship God alone, not angels. But what does the angel say to him? Instead of rebuking Joshua, he says, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. It's almost the exact same thing that was told to Moses at the burning bush. So David would have known that this angel was different. This angel was somehow divine. And David is saying, 
Please, the commander of the Lord's army, come and crush my opponents. The way, God, that you provided for your people in the past, you gave them promises, I will give you this land, and then you fulfilled it. He's saying, do the same thing for me. You've promised that I will be a king, that my line will continue and a ruler will come. Please make good on those promises. This is what David is doing. And of course, God knows this, and he has not forgotten his promises. We see this in verse 22. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. And that's in direct contrast with verse 22, with these enemies who are claiming to have seen, sorry, verse 21, these enemies who are claiming to have seen David and are now talking about it. David continues in verses 23 and 24. And he says, arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause. Saying, Lord, vindicate me. What is happening is wrong. And if you notice in verse 24, something interesting happens. David ties his vindication to God's righteousness. Look at verse 24. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. So vindicate me because you are righteous. You see how close he's tying that together. And it's true that the request David is making for God to contend is totally appropriate and in line with God's actions. We see all throughout the Psalms and the Bible that God preserves his people. He's near the poor and needy. He hears their cry. He delivers them. And we also see all throughout the Psalms and the whole Bible that God does crush his enemies. Psalm 1-6 the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 5.4, he is not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with him. So God publicly vindicating David, clearing his name and preserving him as king, is according to God's righteousness. In this specific, specific situation, David is innocent, and it's right that he'd be cleared. And if we go back to that broader Davidic context of the Psalms, I think we'll be helped as we read this imprecatory psalm and think about how we apply it to our lives. So we've seen that in the entirety of the psalms, David is important. Not just him as a king in books one and two in his life, but also projected into the future. David as a king typifies and he sets the expectation for a future king. Jim Hamilton, to quote him again, puts it this way. The events typified in David's life find ultimate expression and fulfillment in Jesus. The events typified in David's life find ultimate expression and fulfillment in Jesus. To use an example, look at Psalm 34, 20. When speaking of the righteous, it says that he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. How does the New Testament pick up on this verse? Does it at all? Well, it does. And it applies this verse, the fulfillment of it, not to the apostles, many of whom were martyred and had bones broken, but it applies it to the life of Jesus. John 19.36 quotes this verse and says it was fulfilled by Jesus on the cross by the fact that his bones were not broken. And in thinking of the cross, you could even remember Psalm 22 which Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, the righteous servant whom David typified 
is fulfilled and finds ultimate expression in Jesus. One of the reasons I think it's helpful for us to be precise here is to keep us from having wrong expectations that lead to unfulfilled hope. So again, using Psalm 3420 as our example, when I was in the Ukraine on a missions trip several years ago, um, I met an older Christian man. And we were playing soccer at this college event, and he smashed his foot super hard into a younger guy. And so the younger guy walked away fine, but his foot was badly injured, and he was limping around, took his shoe off, his sock off, but thankfully he was able to ride his bike home at the end of the day. And he told me, he quoted this verse, and he said, I knew that I would not break my foot because God told me not one of my bones will be broken. And he was quoting Psalm 3420. And he was meaning like ever. He never expected to break a bone in his life because he had been in a car crash and he did not break any bones because he held to the promise, not one of my bones will be broken. So my question for you guys is, what happens if he does break a bone? Is that really what God has promised to him or to us as Christians specifically? Again, we don't see that in the life of the apostles or throughout church history. So based on that understanding and his expectation, there's really two options. Either God isn't making good on his promises or he's not the righteous as described in this psalm. So do you see how that wrong expectation could lead to trouble for him in his soul in the future if he does break a bone? So we have a bit of theological thinking or work to do when we come to the scriptures and we try to apply it to our lives. We need to understand what it meant to them at that point in time. We need to see how the rest of the Bible unfolds. And usually that looks at how does Jesus' person and work, what Jesus did, how does this affect what was written then and how does it apply to me now? But that in no means, that, that in no way means that Psalm 35 has nothing for us today. Because we see God's provision, again we see a biblical pattern of God's prayer, or of praying to God, crying out to God. We should cry to God for justice and deliverance, for the gospel and for Christians to be vindicated, especially at a time when a lot of Christians around the world are not. They're mistreated. But the full expression of what David writes and typifies finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And I think this is one of the ways we see the entire Old Testament point to Jesus. Not just in specific pro prophetic verses, like one verse or three verses out of a whole book, and that's the only way it points to Jesus, but really the whole like, form and expectation that we have from the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Even the book of Psalms, this future Davidic king is going to come and enact a new covenant. So not just specific prophecies, but the entire shape and thrust of the Old Testament is putting our expectations on that future redeemer, that righteous servant king. So coming back down to the text now, we've looked at the problem, we've looked at the request, and now we're going to look at the outcome. If God answers David's prayer to destroy his enemies, what is the outcome? And for that, we look at verses 9 and 10. Exaltation. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. God will be praised for his deliverance of David. His bones will cry out, O Lord, who is like you? This is true worship, praising God with our entire being, not just with our mind, but also our affections and our will. 
Everything aligned in praise. We also see at the end of the psalm in verses 27 and 28 that God is praised because he delights in the welfare of his servant. This was certainly true of David's day. God delighted in him as his king. And we see David did not die at this point. His enemies did not win. David died in peace uh, and his son Solomon took over the kingdom. So God did hear and deliver and vindicate his servant. And because of that, that future Davidic king that's promised, that future redeemer was able to come. God delighted also in that future king, much as a father delights in his son, because that's exactly the relation between God and that future king who is Jesus. Jesus is the eternal son of God who has come and taken on flesh. He is that promised redeemer. And yet we read something odd, something different about what happened to Jesus. Because Jesus was not vindicated by having suffering removed from him. He was vindicated by enduring suffering and dying on the cross. And then being raised victorious over sin in the grave. And unlike David, Jesus was raised to live and reign forever as the king over God's people. Josh mentioned this earlier in the service, that Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection is the hope that we have for the future. So while we may not hold on to the promise that we will always be delivered from our enemies in this life, we will surely be vindicated in the future at Christ's return. That is something we hold on to. So that's a word for us. If we delight in King Jesus, if we delight in God's saving work in David's life in the past, and in what he has done in Christ, then we should also say, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. God was faithful to his servant King David, and that paved the way for that future, long-promised Redeemer. It also is a word for us if we do not delight in King Jesus. If you're here and you do not delight in God's deliverance, in David's life, in Jesus' life, the book of Psalms is beautiful poetry, it captures the whole range of human emotion. I think people generally, even if they're not Christians, accept that. But what we read here in Psalm 35 is not just a nice example to follow if life gets hard, a coping mechanism. There are numerous things in life that will contend with us. But the only basis that you or I could have to cry out for deliverance is by going to Christ. It's on His merits, on the work of Jesus, so if you have not submitted and pledged your allegiance to that king and placed your hope and your trust in him, deliverance is not going to come. Deliverance is only through the Lord Jesus. And if God has been kind to you, if you're not a believer and you know that, and you have been brought through many difficult trials, if God's been kind to you in that way, do not presume on his patience and kindness, but go to Christ now. He delights in his servant. You should as well. There is coming a day when King Jesus will return and will take vengeance on his enemies. When all of the redeemed will say something similar to Psalm 35, that great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. And so that is a word for both believers and non-believers if you hear. Go to Christ now, delight in him now, so you won't have to fear him later at his coming. This psalm leads us to praise God for his deliverance of David, for showcasing his righteousness, that he does delight in his servant, 
And we see that projected and fulfilled in Jesus as well. It also leads us to pray for those who do not know Christ. For those of us who do, that we would follow David's example in crying out to God. For those who don't know Christ, that they would turn to him today and trust this king. And so I am going to pray to that end. Please join me. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who delivers and saves. In the midst of the effects of sin, all the way at the beginning of the Bible, Lord, we see that you promised a coming offspring. And Lord, you followed and you were good on that promise. Your work in the life of the nation of Israel, the covenant you made with Abraham, Lord, that you made your, known, your name known. And then the promise that you made to David, that a future king would reign forever. And Lord, we know, reading the Bible, that this needs to happen, that you need to provide the king, because Israel was unable to rule justly. We, in our own lives and experience, are unable to rule our own lives justly. We struggle and we sin. Thank you for providing that redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. Thank you, Lord, that you delight in your servant. I pray, Father, and ask that you would help us to follow the biblical pattern of crying out to you in prayer. Lord, would you please vindicate your name throughout the nations in a world that is rejecting Christ and that mocks or derides the gospel. Would you work by your spirit and show great acts of power in the preaching of the gospel? Lord, we pray that what happened here in the churches in this area, in the pillar network, and all throughout the world, that the Lord Jesus would be lifted up, that your righteousness would be explained, and that people would be drawn to that king. Lord, you delight in your servant. Please help us to delight. As we come to the Lord's table, please help us, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.